0: Hi, this is Wilson, lead pastor of Renewed Church OC. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Our sermon series, Psalms, the Internal Life of David, pairs narratives from David's life with Psalms that help us pull back the curtain to understand what he's feeling, how he's praying, and the way he's relating to God. LA is all about how you look and the two-second impression you give to other people. But God doesn't look at the appearance. He looks at the heart. I hope this series helps us to take our eyes off of the external and focuses our attention on developing our internal life with Jesus. chick check. All right. Welcome back, everyone. We have another breakout session at the end of sermon, so you guys can finish off these questions then. But um, as I was thinking about my triggers, I thought back to junior high school. And and I was thinking about how many times I got detention from elementary school to junior high. And then I was thinking about our junior hires. So I'm gonna ask them how many times they've gotten detention in their whole life. All right, Aubrey, you first.
1: I've gotten detention zero times. Zero
0: times? Zero. Times. Zero. zero? Zero. Zero? One. One, okay, Nathan. We're going to do an altar call for you after, but um, I, was, I was like, Nate, I got, I got in trouble one time in elementary school. I got detention. And in high school, I got detention twice because they did this thing called a tardy sweep. Anyone know what I'm saying? So like after lunch, I had a trailer like class that was super far away. And if the bell rings, then everyone who's outside gets detention. And all the counselors are rounding up kids. So it was like, it didn't even really count. It wasn't even behavioral. I was like running and they would stop me and give me detention. But in junior high, eighth grade, sixth grade, zero detentions, seventh grade... None of my teachers gave me detention, except for one, Miss Kennedy. <laughs> I'll, I'll link her uh, Facebook to our thread so we can all counsel her later. She gave me detention about 40 times. 40 times, like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I had detention. That's incredible, and I basically felt like she bullied me. So. You know, as a teacher, there's like ebbs and flows in the classroom, or as a student, sometimes everyone's talking, then the teacher tries to get everyone's attention. And they have different tactics, right? Silent Coyote, or like, hey, everyone settle down. Or, you know, they just do scratching the chalkboard if you grew up in the 60s or you watch cartoons from then. And um, Miss Kennedy, she would say, Wilson, you have the tension. Every time she wanted to get the class quiet, she would just say, Wilson, you have detention, and everyone would be quiet. And literally, I'm like looking around, everyone's talking, and I'm talking as well, and I have detention. It was a pretty bad abuse of power. I didn't know how to advocate my, for myself. I don't know if the word advocacy was available when I was in junior high. Uh, I never told my parents about it. And so every every other day, after lunch, you know, we nachos and, and, um, and uh, fries, chili cheese fries. And then all my kids, all my friends would go out to play. And this was one of the first years where I felt like I had friends. They would go play basketball, they would hang out, talk. And I remember just sweeping the floor, cleaning the tables, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or Tuesday, Thursday. And it was like, a, I felt like I was threatened by something that I couldn't overcome. When you're a kid in a classroom, it's just like your teacher has all the power and you're just kind of sitting there at their whim. When I think about David and Goliath, it kind of feels that way. We're going through the book of Psalms and we're looking at different narratives of David's life and pairing it with a chapter in Psalms, trying to excavate what he's thinking and how he's relating to the Lord, peeling back the curtain. And, and I hope that as we're looking at his internal life in comparison to his external, that we'll learn how to have the internal life of David. So at this point, Goliath is stepping up for the Philistine army. He's talking trash every single day about not only the soldiers, but Saul, and not only Saul, but Yahweh, the God of Israel. Back then, when armies collided, it wasn't just seen as which army is superior or which nation was greater. They were comparing and contrasting the power of the gods, which god was stronger. So when Goliath was challenging Israel, he was challenging the very power of Yahweh. And when all the other soldiers were afraid and retreating, David was this boy a little bit more than a boy, stepping around uh, the camp and talking crap about Goliath. Like, who is this guy? How? Why does he think he can talk that way? And because no one else was talking, because everyone else was silent, he was walked into the tent of Saul the king. And Saul was evaluating him in terms of being their champion because there's literally no one else. He was to champion and represent the nation of Israel and Yahweh. This was a lot of responsibility. In verse 34, David says to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. As Saul is questioning what qualifies him to fight Goliath, he's looking at him like, oh, you're only a little taller than a boy. He starts explaining this backdrop of his history. When a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defiled the armies of the living God. Now look at his motivation. He's motivated because the Philistine has defiled God. And then I think about Pastor Dave's sermon on this just a few months back, and he gave great insight into this passage. He says that David had greater victory in his private life, which led to victory in his public life. His private life was as a shepherd. And in the wilderness, when no one was watching, he was fighting lions and bears. And that was actually a greater victory than fighting Goliath. Remember, David was like, "What if you're in a coliseum and door one is a grizzly bear, eight foot tall; door two is a full-size lion. When he roars, you could hear the bass of his rum, of his rumbles. And door three is Shaquille O'Neal. Who would you choose? Right? And it's like, probably still try to fight Shaq. And um, so David had greater victory in his private life, fighting a greater opponent, the lion and bear." than when he was stepping up to uh, to Goliath. But I also saw in this passage, adding on to what Pastor Dave talked about, is that not only did he have greater victory in his private life, but he had greater victory in his internal life. What allowed him to fight the lion and the bear? What was the first battle that he was fighting? It was this battle of him wrestling with the Lord. It says, the Lord has rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. Will rescue me from the hands of the Philistine. So David in his internal life, in the interior of his life was trusting God. He wasn't saying, I'm gonna beat this lion because I'm a more skilled fighter. I'm gonna take down Goliath because I have a ranged weapon called the sling. He can't touch me. I'm a skilled fighter, I'm stronger. He doesn't say any of these things. He has this constant internal victory with the Lord. He knew God. And the same God who delivered him from the lion the bear, that same God will deliver him from the Philistine. So when we look at Psalms verse 27, we see this in the first verse. The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is a stronghold of my life, whom shall I be afraid? So this Psalm was written by David, it says of David. We don't know if it's directly attributed to him fighting Goliath, but it seems like there's some allusions to that battle in this chapter. But notice how God is his light and salvation. And it's not that God is just a savior, it says that he's my savior my stronghold. There's a personal relationship with the strength and the power and the light of God. And that personal relationship is externalized as he fights these battles. When the wicked advance against me to devour me, so this word devour is a play I believe on Goliath saying that wild beasts will eat him after he's killed. It is my enemies and foes who stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I am confident. So when you look at this graph really quickly, uh, I want to voc- focus on verse number th- two and three. And I want to point out to you the difference between David's external life and internal life. Look at this passage, it says... "When." The wicked advance against me to devour me. It is my enemies and foes who stumble and fall. The external life is that there's an army or there's a giant coming to devour him. But internally, he believes that because God is his stronghold, it is them who's going to fall. Now look at this, an even deeper peek at his heart. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Externally, though war breaks out against me internally, even then I will be confident. There's been this almost global trauma bond as we look at Ukraine. We've never seen war in that detail and color. We've never heard stories so vivid. All of us have seen videos of artillery shaking the ground and cracking windows of gunfire. And we can finally, for some of us, understand the fear and trauma of war. And this is what David's external world is. His main occupation for the first half of his life is he's a soldier. He goes out to the front line of battle over and over again. He's seen war break out, the onslaught of arrows, the clashing of swords. And in there, he has a confidence and he doesn't fear when all of us, uh, especially me, would be trembling, would be retreating, would be hiding. So how does David create a resilient internal life in a chaotic external world? And that's kind of how I'm conceptualizing resilience. When I think about fragility, uh, the opposite of resilience, there's many ways to understand and talk about it. But here's one of the concepts that I'm thinking about: is that fragility is the external world victimizing our internal world, meaning that whatever's happening outside of us, our internal world is immediately dragged into like a victim. There's when when we talk about triggers, it's that way. We experience something that's triggering the trauma, and immediately we're feeling something internally. The external world and the internal world is a paper. Th- Is paper thin when it comes to separation. As opposed to resilience, like David, there's this stone wall. There's this fortress. There's this stronghold between the external reality he's experiencing, an army besieging him, and this internal fearless confidence because of Jesus. How do we develop that type of internal world? Well, verse 4 and 5 speaks to this. One thing I ask from the Lord, the only this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high above the rock. We're going to talk about verse 4 extensively. But verse 5, I just want you to notice that David isn't just, that in his inner life isn't just him by himself. Thinking positive thoughts, clenching his fist, like doing some type of like anime empowerment, you know, finger moves, right? Where is he when he goes internal? That in the day of trouble externally, there's this safe dwelling of God that God is with him, that there's this sacred um, temple that is being created and carved into his eternal life, uh, into his interior life, even as enemies are surrounding him. Verse six says, then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. In his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music, To the Lord, so when the enemies are surrounding him, where does he go? The sacred tent, the tabernacle, later the temple. In there, he will have shouts of joy and make music, right? When the enemies are around him, he's probably he's not able to physically go to the tabernacle. He's not physically able to visit the ark or go to the temple. So where is it? He's built a sacred space in his own soul. We're gonna watch a, a short video from the Bible Project, one of, just a phenomenal resource. You could download it as an app. They do podcasts as well as videos. And this actually is speaking about the purpose of Psalms and how it's, the book of Psalms was written to create this internal temple in our hearts. We're gonna play it, it's three minutes and then I'll come back up.
1: We've been talking about poetry in the Bible, how biblical poets love design masterfully used metaphor and symbolism. These poems invite us into an experience, to ponder ideas slowly and from many angles. And the largest collection of poetry in the Bible is the book of Psalms. So that's what we're going to look at here. Now, the Israelites composed lots of poetry throughout their history. Yeah, poems were written by Israelites, sages, kings, and prophets. Some poems were sung by choirs in the Jerusalem temple, while others were prayed by families at home. And over the centuries, the most important and widely read poems were compiled together to be read or sung on special occasions. And I'm familiar with books of poetry, a large collection, of the greatest poems in one place, and I can read through and pick my favorites. But the Book of Psalms isn't that kind of collection. Here, each poem has been expertly crafted and then placed where it is for a reason, to create a storyline from the book's beginning to its end. The Psalms poetically retell the entire biblical story, and they invite you into a literary temple. A literary temple? Yeah, so the tabernacle, and then later the temple in Jerusalem, were where ancient Israelites went to meet with God. When you arrived, you would see art and imagery everywhere. You'd see priests performing rituals, you'd hear songs and prayers, all of it symbolically proclaiming that your God rules the world from this mountain, and you're in his living room. So the temple was a place to be in God's presence, and also to immerse yourself in the story of God's kingdom. Exactly. And so try to imagine how traumatic it was when the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem, plundered and burned the temple, and then took many Israelites into exile.
2: Yeah, where can they go now to meet with
1: God, to sing their story and say their prayers? That's where the book of Psalms comes in. It's a prayer book for exiles, designed as a virtual temple. You enter the Psalms to meet with God, and to hear the entire biblical story of God's kingdom sung back to you in poetry.
0: So I want you to pay special attention to that last piece. The Israelites, the Jews had a temple to go to, to make sacrifices, to sing to the Lord. The Babylonians came, destroyed it, and then as they're scattered amongst the many nations, they're asking, how do I meet God? And in the Psalms, we open up a book where we are singing and praying and constructing this place to meet the Lord in our own hearts. And in the New Testament, God uh, progresses that as he gives us the Holy Spirit and calls us the temple of God. So not only are we meeting with the Lord inside of us as he indwells us, but other people get to meet with the Lord as well through experiencing our love, our humility, and us introducing them to, the, to Jesus. The next slide says, how does, God, how does David have an internal um, life in an externally chaotic world? So these are some of the things I want to point to as we look at the previous uh, passage. First, he seeks and desires only God. That God is the only one he goes to throughout the course and seasons of his life. And because he's able to meet with God and, and turn to him, he has a constant friend. We all can cling to different things, but they're not constant, are they? My Bitcoin is trashed. My Ethereum is in shambles, right? But even our closest friends can walk away. Our ministries or our business can fall apart. We can go to many things, but only God is constant and has this unconditional love over our life. Only God is powerful enough to um, overcome all of the enemies in front of us. All of the threats to our marriage, all of the violent ruptures in our relationship, all of the ways that we're um, afraid when we're thinking about the future. God is powerful, he's constant, and he loves and cares for us. Secondly, we see David trust his internal reality more than the external threat. And that's a huge challenge before us. Many of us know God as savior or as a stronghold or as a loving father, but we can trust the external reality over the internal reality of our hearts. And that's where depression, anxiety, and fear set in. David might know that God is his fortress, but he very well could trust the external reality of an army besieging him. And feeling that fear is basically him choosing, man, this external reality is more powerful than God who is my stronghold. But we see his confidence and peace speak to the, trusting the Lord, trusting that space with God over the external threats. Um, I'll share a quick story with you. I was on an airplane. I've done many trips on airplanes. And so I'm not like a noob to turbulence. I don't, I don't scream very often, you know, I'm not scared. But what I do do is I look at the flight attendant I'm like, if they're whatever, like if they're just serving coffee and the the thing's shaking, I'm like, it's fine. But if I ever saw a flight attendant start to run and cry, I too would know that it is appropriate to run and cry. And so I'm sitting on this flight and all of a sudden it drops. It drops for what seems like full seconds. And everyone stops. It's completely silent. And we all like giggle a little bit. And then it drops again. And then I see the flight attendants start running to their seats, and then it drops a third time, and now everyone's losing their mind. Like, everyone is screaming. It's like, is like hysterical, and I'm like, wow, this is a great time to just let loose and get this cathartic, crying, yelling moment. But it was also the moment where I realized that I believed in God, and I believed that I would meet him at death all of us collectively was wrestling with death. And I was like, wow, it's real. Like, I really believe this. Because I could sit here and be like, I might die today and be okay. That my internal reality of God being real, of heaven and the new earth being real was settling into this external reality where I thought I might die. Lastly, David creates an internal space to meet with the Lord. And that's what we were talking about in the video um, and that's what we're thinking about as we go over the book of Psalms. So how can we create an internal space and maintain a rhythm with Jesus? And we've revisited this many times, whether it's at the retreat or other sermon series we did. We talked about this in City Monks. And so some of it might seem really familiar and repetitive, but my challenge to you this morning is if you've heard this before, don't ask, do I know it? Ask, am I practicing this? So use it as a health check. Use it as a way to say, okay, I'm, I'm hitting these things well, they're a part of my rhythm, or hey, let's get on this. So when we think about rhythms of being with Jesus and cultivating that internal space that's resilient and separated in some ways from the external reality, <clears throat> we think about externally. What does it look like to carve a time and location to intentionally meet with the Lord? How do we order our life around the one thing, as Mary says? We order our life around many things. We sleep at 3 a.m. I'm sure hopefully none of you guys were up at that time. We order our lives around eating. Working is an immovable part of our life. We go to work on time, we leave on time and so is this internal space we're cultivate, cultivating with Jesus part of how we order our life? For me, I try to wake up in the morning and I, have, I make uh, coffee before the kids come up and I try to open scripture and just sit with the Lord. So that space in my dining room uh, kitchen nook is where I sit with, the Jesus, with Jesus over and over again and cultivate that rhythm of slowing down and saying, there's nothing more important than this. There's nothing that's gonna invade this time, but this is my specific time and location to be with the Lord. Sabbath is that as well. Sabbath isn't meant to be an hour and a half service. It's meant to be a full day where we carve out a space to sit with Jesus, to be with him, to hear his voice, to put away our phones and to to fully give ourselves to him. And secondly, there's this internally we're creating space, right? The first thing we do is that we want to be authentic before the Lord. I think that's the greatest barrier of silence and solitude, of, of slowing down to meet with Jesus, is that there's a lot of things that we don't want to face. Maybe we don't want to face the pain in our lives or the, the ruptured relationships or the sin. But when we slow down and sit in front of the Lord, we bring ourselves to him. But we are also bringing ourselves to a God who knows us fully and forgives us. And more and more, we get comfortable. It becomes normal to to present ourselves before the Lord, regardless of wherever we are, whether we feel distant or distracted, whether we feel depressed or anxious, or whether we feel intimate. I've been reading um, this woman, Ruth Barton, uh, spiritual Rhythms, if you want to pick up that book and talk it over with me. And she describes silence and solitude as intimacy with the Lord without mediums. That this is the space where our relationship with God is not filled by ourselves or others. is not directed by a sermon, a pastor, a friend. But it's that place where we just sit with the Lord. And we get to create intimacy and presence with him. Isn't that where intimacy resides, where we are with someone one-on-one, where they experience us and we experience them, where you make eye contact and you share your presence with each other. And lastly, she talks about our desires, Ruth Barton does. And she, she says, this is a very bold statement, that our desires are the most fundamental parts of who we are that our desires are more fundamental than our gender, our orientation, our addiction, our occupation, that at the very core of us is our desires. And I've been thinking about how we could all desire God more because we're not gonna spend time with him, we're not gonna put him first in our life unless we desire him. And what what she she has been thinking about is how do we take the objects of our desire Uh, whether it's our addiction, whether it's a boyfriend or girlfriend or our career, and ask ourselves, okay, I want this thing. I want this thing more than any other thing, but why do I want it? And how can I turn the desires for this object towards the Lord? So sometimes I get really into stocks, although I'm much more responsible than I was playing poker in my college days, but they come from like a rudimentary desire of wanting provision, wanting to support my family, uh, wanting excitement in my life. Um, And how do I take that desire for provision and say, but God, you are my main provider. I have this deep, unquenchable desire for friendship, right? And the dark side of that is I don't like rejection. I want to be seen and accepted, I want to know that I'm lovable, but how do I take that desire and know that friends will never satisfy me to the depths of my soul and say, God, but you fully see me. You fully accept me. You know me through and through. How do I come to you with that desire? All of us desire God, but sometimes that desire gets rerouted to Addiction and idols to the busyness of our career. I get really jealous because Nina loves K drama and Korean talk shows, right? And like, she's like, especially the talk shows, she loves those. And um, I think it's called Running Man, and then now she's into another one, but she laughs so hard. She laughs harder than any of the jokes I've said to her, right? It's like, it's like she loves these men. And, and, and they speak in a language that I don't even understand. So I'm like, what is he saying that's making you so happy? And why can't I make you so happy? And uh, when she sees, like, you know, BTS or all these other Korean drama guys, she's just looking at them. I'm like, why can't you look at me this way? But what I know is that is that what she really wants is Jesus, right? All the things she's getting from these men, she needs to find in the Lord. And I remind her of that over and over again. Our job is to create this internal space, is to create this external space, but it is God's job to meet and transform us. What we do is create space. What he does is fill it. What he does is allow us to see him so that we can become like him. Again, Ruth Bartner talks about this as a caterpillar transforming to to a butterfly. He doesn't work at that transformation. He's not building out wings. What she is doing is she's creating a cocoon and surrendering her old life. She falls asleep even, and God transforms her. When we think about the space we're creating, We're just carving out the room for God to meet us and transform us. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. When I think about how we turn our desires to him, we see the immense beauty of God that he can meet and hold all of those different desires. Now, I wish that this psalm ended here because I'm kind of out of time and I think it's like the apex of the psalm, right? It's like you're ending at the mountaintop. But instead, David goes into the space of wrestling, of tension, of discord between his internal life and external life. That when he writes this song, it's not in a place of resolution or reflection. I believe he's writing it in the midst of a battle when, there, when, when his external life and his internal life is actually disjointed. It says, hear my voice when I call, Lord, be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says to you, seek his face, his face, your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God, my savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path. Because of my oppressors, do not turn me over to the desire of my foes. For false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malice accusations. I will remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. I love this Psalm because it ends with David in a space of wrestling. And isn't that the space we occupy most of our life? When you look at the totality of David's life, there's these short seasons of harmony of shalom, but so much of it is turmoil and running and hiding and fighting. And when we look at the totality of our life, we have these short seasons, right, where we get to experience the next earth, but most of it is us trying to have enough for our family, trying to fight anxiety or depression, trying to have our families, each one of them, be okay. And, and it's that space, that David leads us back into. To say that a lot of our life is spent trying to cultivate the Sabbath in our souls, this temple where we can see and find God, but we look out and it takes time for that inward life to transform our outward reality. But it does, it does as we wait for God as David waits for God in caves for 4 years running from Saul. As he waits for God for 15 years between his anointing and him becoming king. As as Joseph waits in God waits for God in prison for 13 years. We wait as well. But we have confidence that God is good and we get to be strong and take heart as we wait for him. You know, I think about 7th grade again and having detention every day. I remember the first maybe seven to 10 times, I'm just mad at Miss Kennedy, Miss Kennedy. And I'm like cussing her out and I'm thinking terrible things about her. Um, but the, the, when I got to my 20th detention, my 30th detention, my 40th detention, God brought me back to me being the kid in bed for weeks on end sick, and him building a temple there sitting next to me, us reading scripture together, me gasping for him between breaths because of my asthma. He reminded me of walking with me at recess when all the kids didn't want to be my friend. He was my friend. And again, he showed up. I remember cleaning the tables and um, God teaching me that I was serving my friends. I remember sweeping the floor and him teaching me about what it meant to be a servant, the way he washed feet. And I remember singing and praying through my seventh grade lunches. And by the end of it, it was a space that I looked forward to. There was this temple in the middle of my detention that I got to meet God in. I hope that whatever you're going through, I don't know what it is. But many of us, I would say almost all of us, have places that are unresolved in our life, that feels like we're in detention, we don't know when it will end, we don't know when we can forgive, but God is there with you, and he wants to build out a space where you could block out all of the noise and the violence around you and meet you face to face. God, thank you so much for our time this morning. And we come before you and ask that you would help us find and build out this temple. And let it be the best parts of our life. This meeting with you. Let it become, let it be you only that we seek and desire. And when that's true of us, like it was of David, we'll always have what we truly seek and truly desire. Because you give us yourself. More than anything else in this life, you give us yourself. We're grateful for that. In Jesus' name, amen.
2: Hi, this is Pastor Wilson again. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If our sermons have been a blessing to you, I'd love for you to consider supporting our church and ministry. As we approach the end of the year, we're asking our church family to consider investing into a special fund that support our interns and seminarians. Renew has a vision of investing in pastors for the next generation through our internship program. And your financial partnership can help set up a young pastor or missionary to faithfully serve the Lord for the next 30 to 40 years. I often dream about what Erwin or Kevin will do for the kingdom of God through their 30s, 40s, and 60s. Our goal is to raise $50,000 over the season. Would you consider joining us? You can give through PayPal or Venmo, or by sending a check. All the information is on the description section of the podcast, or you can visit our website. And your investment is tax deductible. Thank you so much for being a part of our church family. If you're ever in the Fullerton, California area, please drop by into our Sunday service. I'd love to meet you. God bless.